All right, just start, yeah, passing out paper. And when you get your paper, fold it once, hamburger, all right? And then fold it once, hot dog, okay? So you want four quadrants on your paper, okay? It, well, that's kind of redundant. Quadrant implies four. Uh, you want four boxes, four rectangles. So when you get it, go ahead and fold it. Make, make four. One hot dog, one, one hamburger. Also, if you're watching the live stream, you go ahead and pause the video, go grab some paper, grab, grab a writing utensil, because you can come back, unpause, and follow along as we do this. Trina, you're always over here whispering. I'm like, what is Trina saying right now? No, no, it's great. Usually, I wish, like I said, I wish I could just give some people mics sometimes and just let them interject <laughs> so here's here's what we're going to be doing i am going to be verbally giving you instructions and you are going to be doing your best to interpret those instructions and draw what i am telling you to okay and each box is for a different picture, so we'll have four pictures all together. So keep all your pictures in one box at a time, all right? Uh, say slushy when you're ready. Okay, we're not, we don't have enough slushies yet. We never will have enough slushies. I know that the Bible doesn't specifically mention slushies, but I imagine that in the kingdom. I, I mean, I just... Land flowing with milk and honey has to have slushies somewhere. Okay. Say slushy if you're ready. Okay, I think we're close enough, and uh, you're supposed to not be good at this anyway, so if you're not ready, it'll help my illustration. Okay. I want you to start by drawing a large in one of your boxes... Probably the top left. Start by drawing a large circle on your page. All right, now below that, draw a medium sized rectangle below the circle. And now connect the circle and the box with three lines. Okay, now we're moving on to the second one. That's all the time you get. Okay, moving on to the second photo, or a second image here. Okay, so near the bottom of your second box, I want you to draw an upside-down triangle. Now closer to the top of your page, I want you to draw a small circle somewhere. And then I want you to connect the upside-down triangle and the small circle with two big circles. Oh, that's it. Sorry, Karen. <laughs> You're supposed to be bad at this, so it helps if I only say it once. I, for, for your sake, since I like you so much. 
an upside down triangle at the bottom of your page, a small circle in the top, and then connect the small circle and triangle with two bigger circles. Okay? All right, we're moving on to box number three here. Sorry, that's, that's all the time you get. Okay. I want, you to just, I want you to draw a circle in the middle of your third box. And in the middle of that circle, I want you to write a lowercase w. Okay? Now to the left and to the right of your circle, I want you to draw two triangles. And inside your big circle, I want you to draw two circles that are symmetrically divided by the middle of the big circle. I said you have to interpret it, so whatever that means to you. And then I want you to draw an upside-down triangle on top of the lowercase w. An upside-down triangle connected to the lowercase w. Okay, last image here. I want you to draw a half circle in the top left corner of your box. Now at the bottom of your page, I want you to draw an upside down trapezoid. We're really getting back to the basics here. It is a rectangle that looks like it got punched on two corners and smushed in. A rhombus is a rotated square. So we're not doing that. It's a trapezoid. I didn't know that trapezoid was going to be the hard part of this. Okay. Okay, so after you draw your upside down trapezoid, above the trapezoid, I want you to draw a right triangle. A right triangle. I should have had like a basics shape chart up here for you guys, I think. Now... Below the trapezoid, I want you to draw a horizontal squiggly line. All right, now opposite of the first right triangle you drew, I want you to draw another right triangle. Why are you blowing on your paper over there? What are you doing, Joanne? Oh, racing? Okay. I think it would have been better with crayons. There would have been no racing. Sorry, Brittany, no questions. I'm sorry. You will find that out soon, I promise. Okay, now I want you to connect your two triangles and your trapezoid with a rectangle. And then on your half circle, I want you to draw straight lines coming out from it. Okay, so here's the big reveal. You guys ready? Everybody look at your first picture. Does it look anything like this? A hot air balloon. Let me see. Joe, that's incredible. Good job, buddy. That's actually pretty good. Anybody fail? I want to see the fail. What's the worst one? Ooh, Trina. That's, yeah. That's... Yeah, that was the point. I'm trying to get to That's... Interesting interpretation, Marissa. All right, everybody, look at your second image. Does it look anything like an ice cream cone? <laughs> I mean, it's not. Trina, that is significantly better than your first one. 
please let me take some picture of these. Because <laughs> they will be a sermon illustration at some point. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah. Don, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. I, there's, there's no shame here. Okay, number three. Number three. Does it look anything like a cat's face? <laughs> hey, Marissa got it. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> oh, well, that's exactly the point. <laughs> Thank you, Jillian, for being a perfect model of my illustration. Number four, does it look anything like this? Supposed to be a boat on some water with the sun. <laughs> That's what a trapezoid is, by the way. That's a trapezoid, in case anybody's wondering. Brittany, I am interested. Let me just come here real quick. Let me see what you got. Oh, you just cheated. (laughs) That is not fair. (laughs) Okay, everybody. Brittany is officially the winner. Okay, so how many of you, my show of hands, would have done better if you could have seen the drawings beforehand in placing your objects? Who, who with a level of confidence said they would have done better, right? Yeah, okay. I think we can take that same principle and we can apply it to almost anything. If we know what we're aiming at, if we know where we're going, we'll be much more successful in making the correct decisions and, and doing the right things to get us to where we want to go. Now, nowhere is that more important than in life. The problem is that many people don't know what they're aiming at. They don't know what's at the end of their lives. They don't know what's ahead. But there is one thing that we all are certain of at the end, and that is we're going to die. I'm sorry that we're opening it up like this, but we're all going to die. Okay? And that's one thing we can all be certain of. And even though we all know we're going to reach that same fate, What our lives look like at that point, at the end, can be very, very different. So we're going to be starting a six-week series today, where we're going to be uh, taking a tour of the book of Ecclesiastes. And we're going to be taking two chapters per week, okay? So you can go ahead and turn to Ecclesiastes, if you want to. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. If you split your Bible right in half, you're going to be pretty close. And so the goal of this series is to learn from Ecclesiastes so that we can correctly see our end and then we can see the steps that we should take to live out our lives correctly now. So that's why this series is called Living in Reverse. The idea is if we know what's ahead of us, if we know what the best is in the end, then we can start living the best life now in accordance with what God says. So with that in mind, I think it's really appropriate that we start at the end of the book. So go ahead, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, where we're going to start. And we'll work our way back here, okay? We're going to be looking at verses 13 and 14. So 
I do want to, before we read this, I want to give you some background information on Ecclesiastes itself. So I feel I'm pretty convinced that the author of Ecclesiastes is King Solomon. That would be the son of David who ruled after him. And although the book doesn't explicitly say that, we do find a lot of clues that I think point strongly to that. So when I say Solomon said or Solomon wrote, just know that I'm talking about the author in general. And if you disagree with me, that's okay. But I think given Solomon's wisdom that he was granted by God and things that are said here, that it just seems like a logical fit to me. So I just want to get that out of the way. Um, but also, what's with the name Ecclesiastes, right? So the Hebrew name for Ecclesiastes is Koaleth, which means uh, one who addresses an assembly, or kind of like in a teacher position. And that means that to create, to be in the right posture with Ecclesiastes is to be a student, right? So we have a, it's often uh, the, called the preacher, sometimes referred to in Ecclesiastes. So we are here as students listening to one giving us a message. The idea is to learn. So we're sitting as students here. And Ecclesiastes just happens to be a Greek word that means the same thing as koleth in Hebrew. And because no one decided to come up with a more appropriate English translation, we have the fun and complicated name of Ecclesiastes. So you're welcome. And all four of my brain cells were together to try to spell that every single time. It's not very successful. All right, so we're going to start at the end. We'll read Ecclesiastes 12, 13 through 14. This is the conclusion. When all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act of judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. What strong and sobering words, right? To end a book. When everything has been considered, when all has been weighed and measured, the author of this book comes away with the idea that the most important thing in life is to fear God, keep his commandments, and to know that everything is going to be judged, even the things that are unseen. So that is what waits for us at the end. That's the ultimate end, right? That is where we are heading. That is what we're going towards. So now let's work in reverse. Let's go back to the very beginning of Ecclesiastes. Let's go to see uh, and study our way through to see how Solomon reaches that conclusion. So go ahead and turn to chapter 1 with me. We're just going to start right at the beginning here. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanities of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. All right, and that's not a magazine, okay? This is a Hebrew word. If you're here for the uh, message I did a few years ago on Ecclesiastes, you'll be familiar with this word. It's the Hebrew word heaven, all right? And it shows up over 30 times in Ecclesiastes, so it's good for us to get acquainted with it now. Literally, hevel means a vapor or a breath. Imagine when you blow uh, a candle out and you have that little wisp of smoke that just disappears. That's what it literally means. And that word implies these fun things such as delusion, emptiness, fleeting, futility. 
All right, what a cheery word (laughs) to start a book. So this is how Solomon starts his book. By saying, everything is meaningless. Everything is temporary and empty. Going after is futile and there is no substance in it. And from here on, Solomon tries to clarify why he thinks that. (laughs) Look at verses 3 through 5. What advantage does a man have in all of his work, which he does under the sun? A generation comes and a generation goes, but the earth remains forever. Also the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it rises there again. So one reason Solomon sees these things in life as vapor and futile is because things are circular. All right, what has happened will happen again. When we die, the world will continue on as it always has. Another day is going to start. Another generation will take our place and another generation will take the place after them. And after them, another generation will take their place. So in reality, what influence do we truly have? What difference can we really make? What good is there in life? And he goes on to give this same idea for six more verses. Just drawing more analogies, explaining it more. And now a lot of people, they read Ecclesiastes and they say, wow, this guy is depressed, right? He needs some antidepressants or something, some counseling. But no, he's not depressed. He's realistic. And he's not saying these things to make us sad. He's saying these things to wake us up to the reality of life so that we don't waste it. All right, that's the whole point. You have one life. And Solomon wants to make sure you're not wasting it. So he's telling you the truth. And what we're doing here, he's laying the foundation, the the core understanding of what brings him to that powerful conclusion we read in chapter 12. Right, this is where it starts in this understanding. And as we go from here, as you read the first two chapters, there's another phrase that appears a lot. So we have hevel, which is this emptiness. And then there's this phrase, striving after wind. All right? And it appears five times in the first two chapters. And I think it's just a funny picture. Right? So imagine you wake up one morning and the birds are whistling. You know? And you look out in your front yard and there's this random stranger running around, jumping, clasping his hands together, just sweaty, looks like he's exhausted. And you open your door and you go, what in the world are you doing? He's like, I'm catching wind. You would dial 911 right then, right? That's because it's crazy. It's a crazy thing to do. It doesn't make any sense. And if you don't believe me, you can go home today after church and try to catch the wind. Just make sure your neighbors aren't watching. Or you're going to get a wellness check from the police, okay? But Solomon uses this phrase, chasing after wind, striving after wind, to express many things in life. All right, look at verse 14 here. I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. 17 and 18. 
And then I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I realize that this is also striving after wind. Because in much wisdom there is much grief. And increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. (laughs) Okay, well, let's see what we got from here. All right, let's just put a bookmark in that and move on to chapter 2. And in chapter 2, Solomon is looking at life and he says, you know what, I am very well placed to figure it out. So I'm going to try everything. All right, look at verse 1 of chapter 2. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself and behold, it too was futility. I said to laughter, it is madness and pleasure. What does it accomplish? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely and how to take hold of folly until I could see what is good, what good there is in it for the sons of men to do under heaven for the few years of their lives. And just pause there for a second. It's important to know that during all of this, Solomon still keeps his wisdom. All right, so he's not just doing these acts for nothing. He's understanding what he's doing. He's searching for meaning in it. All right, look at verse four. I enlarged my works. I built horses, uh, built houses for myself. Excuse me, can't build horses. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had homeborn slaves, and I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. Now, I can't help but notice that Solomon didn't mention disc golf or bonsai in his list, okay? And, and as far as I'm aware, he didn't have potatoes either, right? Because those are South American. Although, given the list he just provided, I doubt any of those things would have made a significant difference. What Solomon is saying, in essence, is that he tried everything to find meaning in life. All right? He, just didn't, he didn't just go to concerts. He created, he built a specific place for people to come and give concerts to him. All right? He didn't... He didn't just like like have a little bit of gold. He collected gold and silver like they were Pez dispensers or action figures, all right? He just like had it all over the place. Which is another reason I think that Solomon is the author of this book. I mean, just look look at how 2 Chronicles 1 talks about Solomon's reign as king, okay? Solomon accumulated 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he stationed in the chariot cities, and also with them in Jerusalem. The king made silver and gold as common in Jerusalem as stones. Right? And he made cedars, the nicest, most precious trees, as abundant as sycamore in the foothills. All right? The best wood was like the autumn olive that grows out in the middle of the cracks. All right? It is like just the wealth is incredible. And in case you didn't know what Jerusalem looks like, here's a picture it's a pretty stony place, all right? So when they're writing this and he says he makes gold and silver as common as stones, 
This is the kind of wealth we're talking about. And no one had even come close to him in Jerusalem before. So I hope this helps paint the kind of picture that we're talking about. Right? What this guy accomplished, what he had, what was accessible to him, and what he did. Look at verses 9 and 11. 9 through 11. Then I became great and increased more than all those who preceded me in Jerusalem, and my wisdom also stood by me. So he's still doing this with understanding and purpose. Although my eyes, all that my eyes desire, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, from my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Look at verse 11. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted. And behold, all was vanity, and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. Just, it was nothing. He realized that this wasn't truly what gave his life value. With all of his wealth, with all of his pleasure, all of the activities he can imagine, more fun, more pleasure, more free time, more everything that any of us could ever imagine, and he says, it is nothing. It is temporary and empty, and it should not be the focus of our life. And he goes on to say things, nice things, like both the wise man and the fool die in the same way. You know, in the long run, both are forgotten. Man and beast, man and animals, they have the same fate. We all die. And he also goes on to say that he even despises his work. All the things he accomplished, he hates because after him, he doesn't know who's going to get it. He doesn't know who's going to take care of it. They could be wise and take care of it well, or they could just squander it. And in a generation, it's gone. And that's exactly what happened with Rehoboam and Solomon. The nation split because he was being unwise. And despite all of this, what we've read in the first two chapters, Solomon does in this chapter, with a slight change of pace in what he's saying. Look at verse 24 and 26, through 26. There is nothing for better, nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and to tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen, that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. While to the sinner, he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to the one who is good in God's sight. He does tack this on. This too is vanity and striving after wind. All right? So what we see here is the beginning of the formation of that conclusion we read in chapter 12. All right? Through all of what Solomon had learned to this point, he's telling us that to enjoy life is a good thing. And to enjoy life at its core is to realize that God, that God is the source of that enjoyment. All right? That is a conclusion after the first two chapters. And that the, the more valuable things like wisdom and knowledge and joy are given to us from God. That's where they are actually from. They're not from all the working and the striving, and the wealth. But he does end the chapter reminding us that seeking joy, and eating and drinking, and working hard, and enjoying your work alone isn't the source of life, right? It isn't the ultimate source of fulfillment. So he's still reminding us that even though these are good things that God gives us, 
they're ultimately not in the end the things that we need to seek. All right? So it goes beyond that. It's, there's something deeper, something with actual substance that is truly worth our effort. So for here, we're going to kind of put a bookmark in Ecclesiastes. And we're going to come back to it next week. But I do want to recap what we've learned today. First of all, knowing the end influences the now. All right, so the same is true of our fall. The, the same principle is true. The fun drawings that we did this morning and our walk in life. If we know what is in the end, if we know what we're aiming for, it is much easier to put our pieces together, right? And a lot of people don't see that. They don't understand, or they don't take seriously the fact that they're going to die and they need to figure it out, right? We all think death is far off. We all think it's something to worry about later. It's something for tomorrow. It's something for 10 years from now. It's something for however long out, right? But if we have the courage to be real with ourselves, to, to read the first two chapters of Ecclesiastes and say, okay, this is the reality, then we can actually shape our lives around the truth and we'll ultimately be better for it. And I think this is, the next point is important too, is that we can strive after win by accident, right? While Solomon tried everything in chapter two on purpose to see if things were good, everything that he tried on purpose, the world says are the good things that we need to do, right? And so this cultural input that we get our inner desires, our lusts, and our sinful nature all lead us towards these things that Solomon had in abundance. And so by accident, we can walk into these lies of seeking these things, thinking that in the end they're going to fulfill us. Right? So by all accounts, Solomon had nothing left to have. The world would have said he's truly successful. He's, he should be happy. He's accomplished everything in life he could ever dream of but he still calls it empty. So, fill your life with something that matters. Don't accidentally stumble into getting lost in the pursuit of things that don't matter. And lastly, a little bit of encouragement here today is that we can truly escape the meaningless. Right? In the first chapter, we read that there's this circle, how things come back. There's these laws of nature that most things are proven meaningless because they just are on the cycle that rotates over and over. But God offers us an escape from that meaningless. He offers us an escape from that normal cycle. He offers us an escape from the inevitable fate of all man, which is death. He gives us an out. He gives us an end to eternity. For most things, they are finite and limited and constrained by natural laws and rhythms. But because of God and his promises and his power, we are offered eternity. We are offered his wisdom. We are offered his truth that will give us really the depth of understanding. So because of God, we can escape meaninglessness, the meaninglessness of life. So for today, I just want to leave it there. I'm very much looking forward to going through the rest of Ecclesiastes with you. There's a lot of wisdom for us to unpack and learn. So next week, if you want to prepare, which I know some of you like to do, read chapters 3 and 4, 
you know ahead of time what we're doing, and then we'll be discussing that next week. Go ahead and pray with me. God, I just ask for wisdom as we are going through the book of Ecclesiastes, that you let us see the purpose and truth in life, that you lead us towards true understanding and allow us to to live our lives in a way that glorifies you and gives us true purpose. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.